Please be seated. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 10, continuing our series through the book of Mark. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32 and going through verse 45. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32 and going through verse 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I had to drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In 1633, Galileo was tried and found suspect of heresy by the Roman Catholic Church. His crime was arguing that the sun was the center of the universe rather than the earth. Up until that point in the Western world, theologians included, everyone thought that the earth was still. The sun and stars move, but they revolve around the earth. And it's really easy to see how we thought that, right? Like, that's our experience. We walk outside, we look up, it really seems like I'm standing still, but the sun moves and moves around. It revolves around where we are in space all the time. We didn't know much about other solar systems. We didn't know much about other galaxies beyond ours. So whatever we could look up and see in space must be all that there was in the entire universe. And we, here on earth... We had to have been at the center. I mean, where else would it be? We're here. We're the ones who matter. So we have to be the focal point of everything that goes on. So then when the church went to read scripture, they took that idea and they read it into the text. They saw whenever the Bible talked about the sun rising and setting, and they pointed and said, see, God says the sun moves, not me. God's saying I'm at the center and it's revolving around me. It's true. God says so. What they didn't realize was that the Bible isn't making a statement about astronomy. It's showing us something by pointing us to how we experience the sun relative to ourselves. But the root cause of all their misinterpretation, the root cause of their reading scripture in that way, was the wrong belief that we 
are at the center of the universe. It was a wrong belief that in all the important ways, all that we see, all that we experience, all we know, all that happens is ultimately about us. I mean, who else would the story be about? I think many of us today tend to make that same mistake when we read the Bible, when we think about our lives. We tend to think that everything revolves around us, our experience, what we want, what we desire. We are the main character in our own story. But it's my hope today that you'll start to see just a little more clearly, a little more simply, that God, not you, is at the center of everything. Christ and his gospel, not you, is the center of the universe. Jesus, he is the point, not only of scripture, all of scripture, but of all of reality. And I think our text today is going to give us three ways that we know Jesus is the point, that we know he is the point, not us. First of all, Jesus is the main character. Look at the first three verses. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. When we read verse 32, it's talking about a group of people, but there's someone who really stands out, right? It's a group, they're walking, they're going, but they're all following after someone who is out in front. He was the one, Jesus, who turned their direction toward Jerusalem back in chapter 8. And now they're getting closer. They're almost there. They're about to reach the destination that they've been driving at for now three chapters. And he's already twice before this text told them, Hey, when we get to Jerusalem, everything's going to come to a head. They're going to kill me. But then I'll come back. And even as he's going to that fate, to that end, notice where he is. He's out front. He's leading them. They're approaching, following in fear and amazement of this man who is absolutely different from everything that they've ever experienced. They're in fear and amazement because he said what's going to happen to him there, and yet he's still going. He's still in front. They can't comprehend a man who would possibly act that way, who would possibly do those things. He is perfect in every respect. They can't help but be in awe of who he is and what he's doing. He's drawing himself and them with him ever closer to the darkest day that any of them would ever see, and yet he's still out front. He's still leading. He's still drawing them close. He's still teaching them. He's still loving them, preparing them in full knowledge of everything that's about to happen. He is the one who's leading out in front. And he's the subject of everything that happens in these verses. Look at the next two saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He's the protagonist of the story. He's the protagonist of all of reality. So when he begins to tell them in greater detail than he has up to this point, the pain and suffering that they will soon witness, he's the subject of all that happens there. He doesn't say everything that's going to happen as if it's happening to him. He says everything that's going to happen as if he is the point and the focus of everything that's happening. He is the willing victim of what's about to happen. The chief priests, the scribes, they're the villains. The Gentiles, the Romans, they're the perpetrators. He will be mocked. 
spit on, flogged, and killed. And he is the point of that entire sentence. The first time he told them about the cross, he just said that he would be rejected and killed by the chief priests and scribes, and then he would rise after three days. The second time, there are even fewer details. He said he'll be delivered into the hands of man and killed before rising after three days. But now he starts to give them a fuller picture of exactly what's about to occur. The hero of the story, the beautiful and perfect teacher who has spent about three years with them at this point, showing them the wonder of his power and the plan of God to save sinners, the one who never slipped up the whole time, the one who calmed the storm, who healed the paralyzed, who gave them a better way and an even harder path than the law, getting right to the issue of the heart, the one whom they love and who loves them more than they can imagine. That's the one that this is going to happen to. This is the first time they're clued in about the humiliation that's about to happen, about the extent of the pain and suffering he was going to occur. Up until now, they might have thought that when he died, as he said he was going to do, he was going to die a hero's death. He, as the Messiah, would lead them into battle. He would throw off the Roman oppressors, defy the corrupt Jewish leaders, and usher in a new kingdom with a new line to sit on the throne of David for forever. They said, yeah, he may die, but he's going to die a victorious hero, and then he's coming back. This is the first time they've heard of the spitting. This is the first time he lets them know that both those groups that the disciples are hoping he's going to defeat, both of them are going to have a hand in killing him. These predictions of Jesus, when we hear them, should be a shock to our system. If you're reading this passage correctly, you cannot read those three verses and still think that they're about you. You can't read those three verses and think that it's pointing to you as the center of everything that happens. The Bible, the gospel, should ultimately, absolutely form the foundation of your life. So in that sense, it is like a roadmap. But when we reduce this book to an instruction manual, what we do is we forget the purpose of the Bible. We place ourselves at its center rather than the hero of the story, the main character of its text. This story, the Bible, is not about you. It's about him. It's about what he's telling us in these verses, that the perfect son of man came. He stepped out of heaven, taking to himself a human nature without relinquishing his divinity. He lived a perfect life and told us about the way of life before allowing himself to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, before being mocked, spit on, flogged, stabbed, and killed. And when the perfect one who did not deserve it died in the place of the ones who did, in place of the ones who were killing him, through that death, he killed death. He came back to life and brought with him all who would repent and believe in him. That gospel, those truths, that is the point of this book. That's the point of our Bible. It's not about you. And you know that it's not about you because Jesus is the main character of everything that happens. The second way we know that Jesus is the point rather than ourselves is because he's the one who gets all the glory. You see, we think that we deserve a place of honor. Look at the next few verses. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. You see, we so often forget that he's the point, 
and we think that we deserve a place of honor. James and John had just heard about the great pain, the great suffering that Christ was going to endure to do his work of saving them. And their first thought is, yeah, yeah, whatever, Jesus. When you do that rising thing on the other end, make sure you give us a good seat. Make sure we get a good spot. How presumptuous of them. Not to mention ill-timed. To think that they deserve a place at all in his kingdom. Much less the seats to his right and left. The places of highest honor in his glory. But for so much of us, that's how we go through life, isn't it? We so often expect the waters to just simply part before us. You can tell that we think we are the point of everything that happens when you hear us complain. How is it that every time I get in a lane lane of traffic, it stops moving? How is it that every time I go to the store and try to grab the blue shirt, they never have it in my size, but all the other ones? I can't believe that that person didn't thank me specifically. Don't they remember everything I've done for them? You see, we believe that we deserve the honor and the glory and all the perks that come with those things. And any time that's not how it works out, any time life doesn't fall into place perfectly before us, it must be because someone else doesn't understand how things work around here. They're supposed to get out of my way. They're supposed to create the space for me to go. We think that we deserve a place of honor, but what we forget is that he is the only one who is capable of doing this kind of work which results in that honor. In reality, we don't deserve anything good that we receive. And when it comes to Christ's kingdom, we might not like what it takes to receive that same honor. Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They didn't know what they were getting themselves into. They didn't know what it would take to get that kind of glory. Saying, you guys don't know what you're doing. You think you're able to drink the cup of wrath of God that I am about to drink? You think that you will be able to pass through the baptism of death that I am about to pass through? Be careful what you wish for, James and John. He's telling them that the way to honor and glory in the kingdom of God isn't through the works that they are going to be committing, but through the works that he is doing. It's not through what they have done, but what he is going to do. Your place of honor in his kingdom, whatever that may be, isn't given to you because of what you've done, but because of what he did. You didn't drink the cup of God's wrath on behalf of the sins of the world. He did. You didn't pass through death to life as the first fruits of the resurrection, the glorious sign and promise of all God's people awaiting that same life. He did. He's the only one who can do the work which results in that kind and place of honor. So he gets all the glory. And if it's all going to him, every ounce, every look, every thought, every act of worship, there's simply just not any left over for you. Tough. Learn to deal. Because it's not about you. You are not the point. But he is. What we can do, all we can hope for, is more than you could ever possibly deserve. To be able to participate in who he is and what he's doing through his grace. 
Look at the next few verses. And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus is identifying with his disciples. He is uniting with his people to the extent that when he does the work that he is about to do, those who are with him, those who are his, who are in him, participate in that same work. But the disciples here are overestimating themselves. He asks them that question. Clearly the answer is no. It's one of those questions. He says, are you able to do this? Leading them to the obvious conclusion, no, no, you're right. We wouldn't be able to. They say, oh yeah, we can do it. Don't you worry, Jesus. We've got this figured out. We can handle it. They're overestimating themselves. They think that they'll be able to follow him step by step into everything that he's going to do. But notice his answer isn't fully to admonish them. It's not just to call them out on their arrogance. He actually affirms them in some ways through his grace. He says, sure, yeah. You're going to drink the cup that I drink. You're going to drink, you're going to be baptized with my baptism. When I do the work that I am about to do, those who are mine, those who are in me, those who are with me, you will have also done that work. Because I did it for you. I did it in your place. I did it on your behalf. So if you're with me and in me, when I do it, it's as if you've done it. He's saying, if you want the place of honor in my kingdom, you don't get that by going through my suffering and passing from death to life. But since I will have gone through that suffering, since I will have passed through death to life on your behalf, the place of honor is yours. You do get to come into the kingdom. You do get a great seat at the table. You'll be welcomed in and have a place of honor, not by your work and your suffering, but rather by your vicarious participation in his suffering. In his work. Because Jesus is ultimately about his own glory. We can know that he is the point of everything. Not us. But since he's about his own glory, he allows all of his people to bask in and enjoy that same glory in him and through him. You are not the point, but he is. The third and final way that we know Jesus is the point of all of reality is because he is the great one. You see, we so often want greatness for ourselves. The other ten disciples hear this conversation and they get angry with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Look at verse uh, 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. He said, how dare you guys ask for the seats at his right and his left? What are you thinking? You think you're really that much better than me that you get that spot? And then depending on how they understood what Jesus was saying as he answered, they might have thought that Jesus just said, yeah, all right, sure. You want the seats to the right and left? You got them. So then all the other ten turn and they say, I can't believe you guys asked him for that. I also can't believe it worked. I wanted that seat. That greatness should be mine. You see, the other ten disciples didn't make the request of James and John, not because they were so pious that they would just never dream to do so. They were so humble, they would never approach Jesus to try to find that place of honor for themselves. It was because, evidently, they just hadn't had the chance yet. They hadn't had the guts. It didn't occur to them. 
You see, that desire for greatness that's found in the request of James and John, that's not particular to them. They're not especially prideful. They're no different than you, me, or the other ten disciples. Because the other ten disciples had it too. It wasn't particular to them. We all have it. Every one of us, from the moment that we are born, has a God at the center of our hearts who we love and serve and place first in our lives. It's us. We are the ones that we love. We are the ones that we worship. We are the ones we adore. Until we are faced with the reality of the one true God, we are our own gods. And we go through life looking for all the praise. We go through life looking for all the honor, all the glory for ourselves, just like the disciples were doing here. But in the kingdom of God, we are not the great ones. He is the great one. Look at how he answers them. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Out in the world, when you see someone who has power, you can tell. You can see it. You can see it from ways off. They've got the look. They've got the entourage. They've got the money. They've got the position. They've got the aura, which lets everyone around know that they are the master of whatever domain they just walked into. What they say goes. What they want, they get. But it's not so in the kingdom of God. Among us, the greatest is the greatest servant. The one we consider to be first is the one who would, by all appearances, be last. The one who's serving more and more than everyone else. The one with the lowest position, the greatest amount of work to do. That's the person who's the greatest in God's kingdom. Not the one who's standing up front. Not the one who's out in charge. Not the one who's taking the glory for themselves but the one who through their service is pointing to the one who deserves all that glory. That's the same way that Christ showed us his greatness. The way he lived, the way he died, if that were under any other circumstances, if that were done by any other person, we would consider him not only to be just not worthy of worship, but we wouldn't even consider him to be worthy of our time. He'd be hardly a footnote. How many other... Jewish people do you know of from around 0 A.D.? Not many. If he had been just a man, we wouldn't take any note of him. He'd hardly be a footnote. One more wannabe guru revolutionary who in the eyes of the world failed to bring about the change that he wanted. But that's not true about Jesus, is it? His humility, his suffering, it actually points to his greatness. It shows us who he actually is. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read the entirety of Isaiah 53. This is the suffering servant passage, which I have referenced several times throughout our series in the book of Mark. And I think that's because Mark is drawing parallels between the life of Jesus and this passage in Isaiah 53 on purpose all throughout his gospel. 
He's making it incredibly clear over and over and over again. Hey, this passage in Isaiah 53, it's Jesus. It's talking about him. He's the one who's doing these things. So listen to this. Listen to this passage and tell me whether you think Jesus would qualify as the greatest servant. Whether he would be the slave of all that he's talking about here in these verses in Mark. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1, should be on the screen behind me. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, we shall, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That doesn't sound like a glorious ruling king, does it? That doesn't sound like someone with power and authority. That doesn't sound like someone who would be the center of all of reality. And yet it is. That's how Christ showed us who he is. That's how he revealed himself to us. Through that humility. Through that suffering. By being the greatest servant and the slave of all. He showed us his greatness by his service. When we look at his life of service, when we see his life of humility, every instance and example which would normally cause us to assume that this man has no status worth noting, no name worth remembering, all of those instances should, in this case, paradoxically call us into even greater worship of him. The lower he goes, the greater he reveals himself to be. Only one so great could serve so many. Only one so big could appear to be so small. 
only one so powerful could possibly take on such weakness. See, in the kingdom of heaven, the one who is the greatest among us is the greatest servant among us. And he is absolutely the greatest servant we could imagine because of who he is and what he's done. And his service, ultimately, is what has bought our pardon. He must be the great one who does not lord his authority over his people as the Gentile rulers do, but rather the one who serves them and who gives his life for them. His life of service not only shows us his greatness, but it ultimately is what has bought our pardon. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The life he gave, the blood he shed, that was given for your sake. That was given on your behalf to pay the ransom and the debt that you owed because of your sin. He told his disciples that he would do this three times on the way to Jerusalem before it finally happened when he got there. And it never really clicked for them, did it? They heard it three times, and every time they somehow found a way to make it about them. They somehow found a way to hear him say, I will be delivered into the hands of men and killed. They're going to spit in my face. And somehow they found a way to hear that and think, great, what spot do I get? They were failing to see that he is the point rather than them. You simply are not the point. And it's my hope today that that will start to sink in for you. That you are not the center of the universe. You're not the main character. He is. You don't get the glory. He does. You're not the great one. He is. But that is very good news for you. It's the best news for you. Because this one who is so great who has done so much, he is calling you into his worship today and every day. He gave his life as a ransom for yours, even in his greatness, humbled himself to that point for you. And his work, the gospel that he has accomplished, can be applied to you through repentance and faith today. It's my hope and prayer that today will be the day that you stop thinking that you are the point. That you stop thinking that you might be able to serve just so that you can get ahead. That today will be the day that you start worshiping the one who actually is the point. Who actually is the focus. Who is the center of everything. When we read his book, when we hear his gospel... That has glorious implications for us. We are great beneficiaries of who he is and what he's done. It's not that we don't matter. It's that he is the center of everything that matters. That's what we have to understand. That's what we have to know. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for placing yourself and your glory, your being, your work at the center of all of creation. Anything else wouldn't be worthy of that place. How for us to know that, to trust that, 
to be the kind of people who, when we think, we think of you. When we feel, we feel as you do. When we do, we do what you would have us do. Let us stop trying to think of ourselves as the center and the point of everything, but rather, in humility, as Christ, look not only to our own interests, but also to the interest of others. To follow Christ's example, that though he was great, became small for us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. If you would please stand for our closing hymn.